Tom, are you okay? I lost her. Her? She was going to be this epic, trilogy-worthy character. I was going to be the hottest writer in Hollywood. But I can't get past Act One! You need some writer's group therapy. Hello and welcome to Writer's Group Therapy. I'm Tom. And I'm Roshni. We're writers helping writers. Are you ready for your session? The doctors are in. And if you like these episodes, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss any new content. Share it with your friends. You can catch us online at writersgrouptherapy.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at WG Therapy individually. I'm Tom underscore Loveman on Twitter and Tom Loveman on Instagram. And I'm at Roshni Lumino on Twitter and at Moon Lily Music on Instagram. Wow, we have a lot to talk about today. <laughs> I'm excited. I'm so excited for this episode. There is so much. Later on in the episode, we will, we will be joined by Aaron Colite, who is a writer, producer, showrunner of the current Netflix show Daybreak, among other mm. things. So that'll yeah. be a great interview. Definitely stick around for that. But first, let's do some housekeeping. Fellowship deadlines. Oh, yeah. They've changed. It's weird. Um, have you been applying to anything lately or not really? Uh, I've been so busy with other projects, I haven't even thought about it. Uh, so no, but I know, I know you're always on top of that. I will admit right now to being a bit of a planner nerd who keeps a nice detailed list of when every fellowship, every writing fellowship hits during a year. So like when the submission period normally opens. I'll be honest, a lot of these deadlines have not changed in years. So you always kind of know, like in the spring, apply to these five things. May, June, usually. Yeah. yeah. The CAPE Fellowship deadline is now, if you're listening. And CAPE is Coalition of Asian Pacifics and Entertainment. They do writing fellowships and they also do directing slash producer fellowships. I've never applied to that side of it, so I don't know much about it. But usually their fellowship window is December, and it's kind of creeped up a bit this year. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in the Cape one, go apply now because it ends in early December. And uh, Nickelodeon has pushed theirs back by several months. So normally they're January, February, they push theirs back to summer. So don't take anything for granted. Check your deadlines. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's changing. It's kind of interesting. I'm like, what's going on? Because when things change, it makes me go, oh my gosh, are they dropping that program? (laughs) <laughs> but I don't think so. I think they're just revamping things. Uh, speaking of submissions, uh, article just came out uh, recently about festivals. Um, we did an episode a while back. Episode uh, session fifty six was about a festival strategy, and it has a lot of good information uh, that's applicable here because uh, it, it it talks about um, watching out for like dubious festivals. And this article um, talked about some of the worst case scenarios. Uh, a woman had uh, been accepted to a festival in London and uh, she was so excited. She bought her tickets and planned her trip and went over there and found out that the festival wasn't happening due to quote unquote issues. Uh, and, uh, you know, she had to like kind of fight with uh, Film Freeway to get some of her money back. But you have to be careful uh, when you're planning these. Make sure your festivals are reputable and established. And have good communication. Uh, watch out for festivals that um, you know don't list a person, like an actual festival director that you can look up. You know, always email, ask questions, and make sure they respond with you know detailed information. Uh, but we'll put the link in the show notes, so check it out. You know, festivals are great; they're great ways to you know get out in front of people and uh, show off your work. But don't be uh, 
taken advantage of. And definitely read the reviews. I mean, some people will review and be like, this festival sucks just because they didn't get in. But so discount those. But the ones for people who have attended the festivals and been a part of it in whatever capacity, they'll know. And don't don't be afraid to call a past attendee and be like, hey, did you go to this? What was it like? Mm-hmm. Just because, yeah, there are a lot of really, really weird festivals. One thing we found, which I can't remember if we mentioned this in that episode because it was so long ago, but we found when we were applying, a lot of festivals are started by filmmakers just to showcase their own film. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of build a festival around it to you know, kind of make uh, it a little more legit or make it a bit of an event, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But you do have to watch out. Some of them just want it. Yeah, I, you know. the one story I probably told on the on this in the episode was, um, you know, this really cool looking festival on paper. But when I emailed to ask, you know, who runs this festival? You know, who are the judges? Where is it held? Um, the the person just wrote me back and said, "Oh, we're just a bunch of people who love movies, and we like to rate movies and give out awards." So they're really, you know, for your twenty bucks or whatever it is, not not particularly worth it unless uh, you know some of these are pay to plays too. Oh, watch out for those. Oh, you remember those? Mm, the ones yeah. who are like, are you going to come to our festival? We'll, we'll be announcing the. By yeah, the way, we'll be announcing <laughs> the, the finalists soon. But are you coming? Yeah, watch yeah. out for those. And you have to pay for your ticket, and you have to pay for your the this and pay for that. And, uh, and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So watch yourselves out there in festival world. But speaking of. Speaking of festival world, one interesting thing also from that article is that right now there's only really one festival submission game in town, which is Film Freeway without a box closed. In September, yeah. And in September, yeah. And right now you can either submit directly to the film festival if they'll let you or through Film Freeway. And most, almost all of them say they don't do direct submissions because... They don't want to have to deal with, you know, uh, people mailing stuff in and DVDs and Blu-rays and they'd rather just go online and do it. It's much easier. So definitely do your due diligence just because, you know, not that there's anything wrong with Film Freeway. It was actually our preferred method, but a monopoly, you know, can lend itself to some pitfalls. Oh, I want to tell you um, about my uh, latest masterclass experience. Oh yeah, you've been so good about that. I've I'm like only one and a half classes. I've been trying in. to do a lesson a day, and I I, I really uh, enjoyed uh, Ron Howard teaches directing. I finished that uh, recently, and it was interesting as a writer because now I I think about the scripts I've written much differently. I have a very visual idea in my mind about how a a scene looks, and it's usually I notice from like one perspective, like. I only think of it from the wide shot mostly and uh, Mm. watching Ron Howard, he actually takes a scene from Frost Nixon and shows how he's um, directing the cameras and the actors to get all kinds of coverage and doing it different ways. And he does it like, well, if I had a a little budget, if I had a small budget, this is what I would do. And if, uh, you know, if I had more time, this is what I would do. And um, really seeing how complex and how varied his, his, uh, his processes to get different angles and different reactions really made me see how my scenes could really come to life, you know, through camera, you know, through the different angles and the different scenes and the different shots. So it kind of, it kind of like makes me really want to like think about more than just the person who's talking, I guess is what, what I'm saying is you really dive into the, the whole 
environment and what's going on in the whole scene to really think about that. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of people standing around talking to each other. You know, it's funny. We were actually uh, off off camera, off podcast. We were talking about, I sent you an article about editing. And I said, you know, I think like a producer when I write, but I don't always think like a director or an editor. And I mean, there there's definitely been cases where editing has saved a film. Star Wars, which by the way, this is our first time mentioning Star Wars in a long <laughs> time. But Star Wars is a great example of that. You know, it's a, it's a very well-known Hollywood legend that the editor made Star Wars a new hope a new hope, like the amazing film that it was. So I don't always think like a director or an editor when I write. And I wonder if I should. I, I, I would think, you know, uh, with our experience with reclamation is I wish I brought the editor in at the beginning. Um, well, I actually wound yeah. up doing a lot of the editing with Allison, but um, our director, but I, I kind of wish I'd had gotten a, a really professional editor to come in and, and work on that with me from the beginning. Um, I like, I, mean, I love how it turned out, but I feel like there's, there's still something there. Maybe another editor could, could, could enhance it a little bit. But then again, I also look mm-hmm. at it and go, wow, we did not have as much coverage as I thought we did. So all of that came out of, you know, this masterclass working, you know, watching Ron Howard, you know, direct one scene over and over again to show different ways to do it. So as a writer, it's going to, it's going to help me, you know, think about that as I'm writing. That's really cool. And you also know, I know you, you're a comedy writer, but you know, I'm like deathly afraid of comedy. <laughs> so on my next lesson, I've, um, I'm into the first few lessons of Judge, Judd Apatow teaches comedy and it's really cool. Oh, yeah. I am so impressed that you're still going. I finished the Steve Martin class. I'm in the middle of Shonda Rhimes and I just, if I don't push myself to watch it, I just forget. Well, I'm only on my second class too, but. I think it's totally worth it. Um, again, if if you have the the time and the resources to try MasterClass, it's quite uh, a unique experience and uh, amazing to have. You know, like like you're sitting there talking. Well, you're not talking to, but listening to Ron Howard lecture you on all these different movies he worked on and the different challenges he faced. And it really uh, is kind of inspiring, and it's also you know extremely informative. So. Cool. We don't get any kickback from them either. This is no, just this is sharing. just us. Just yeah. Sharing, so yeah, I mean, so full disclosure, we've signed up for the masterclass year-long pass back in April, and had <laughs> super good intentions. I was like, I'm going to watch everything on there, <laughs> and I have not. Out. So it's just us updating where we are in the journey. I should, I definitely need to get back into it because downtime coming up in the holidays, maybe. That's true. That's true. And honestly, what I've been seeing of the Shonda Rhimes class is amazing. Like she even has her show Bible up there and stuff. It's just, I need to be motivated to sit down and watch. And I'm so not good at that. Yeah. Speaking of things to watch with all the streaming services happening. So Disney plus, which everyone's been talking about finally launched this month. And it's interesting. There was an article that uh, we were talking about earlier how Disney was pulling a lot of their content from theaters or just not putting it in mm-hmm. theaters and it was only going to go to streaming. And the article was was contending, is this going to kill movie theaters? Which I don't, well, we can discuss. Let's discuss. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I don't think it's going to kill movie theaters. Um, and I don't think, um, I think the big franchises um, are, you know, they're still going to do theater spectacles. It's, it's part of Hollywood. It's part of the whole experience. 
and you have directors, you've heard them say this, like Spielberg, um, Scorsese, uh, Ron Howard, George Lucas, James Cameron, they all are very pro theater, big screen shared experience. And they're, they're probably, you're probably not going to see any of their movies going straight to streaming anytime soon. So I don't think any of that is in danger of becoming, you know, small screen content anytime soon. Plus well, I they're think, all huge films. Yeah. I think the, the author of the article though was, was saying because Disney owns so many properties. So if it pulled not just their direct Disney branded films, but Pixar and Marvel and what have you, Star Wars, you know, everything, then what's left to be in the theater was what they were arguing. Right. And I mean, there's still um, tons of movies that are produced every year, you know, up to three or 4,000 films are made every year and only, you know, a few hundred get theatrical releases. So perhaps this will open up some space for some other, um, you know, movies that have been overlooked that didn't get theatrical releases before. Mm-hmm. The theater is still uh, an American, you know, experience. It's a thing people love to do. It's a, you go out, you have dinner, you, you, you see a movie. It's gotten more expensive, so maybe people aren't going as often, but it's still kind of a unique thing that is something families do and, and you know, people on dates do that I don't think you're going to see disappear anytime soon. I, I don't think it's going to disappear, but one thing that wasn't in the article, which I think it will be interesting to see how Disney deals with this model. You were saying, for example, Lady and the Tramp, the live action movie is going direct to Disney Plus, or there's a Christmas movie called Noel with Anna, uh, Anna Kendrick that's going direct mm-hmm. to Disney Plus. But, and, and it's great, like if you're a Disney Plus subscriber, you're like, cool, you know, I get to watch all my Disney shows, plus these added bonuses of these big theatrical movies with, with big name actors, which is great. But eventually, all movies have to, they don't have to, but they will be released on home video. And remember back in the day, oh, so long ago, you would see a a movie in the theaters and it would take maybe like a year and a half to two years to be released on home video. And you knew that going in Mm -hmm. and you knew that going in, if it was ever even released on video and you knew that going in. And so you were like, I have to catch it in the theater or I will never get to see it. Titanic is a great example. That's why it had such a long run because everyone's like, I'm just going to keep going and going and going because who knows when it'll be released on video. But somewhere in the last 10 years, distribution models change. So a movie comes out in the theater for like three or four weeks and then bam, it's on DVD within two months later. So Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm wondering how Disney's going to deal with that distribution model because if you put like say Lady and the Tramp out and it comes out now, in in theory, it should be on DVD by January. Are they ever? Are they just not going to release these films on DVD? How do they keep the people watching in the subscriber yeah. base? Do you know what I mean? Because I'm sure they don't want to lose out on the home video sales. I mean, the article goes into the math. Um, but if you have a subscriber on your streaming service for five or seven dollars a month, um, so figure that out. Oh, seven dollars a month over the course of a year—that's eighty-four dollars a year. Okay. And if uh, the average person sees three or four of your movies a year and you take out the cut that the theater takes and all those kinds of distribution costs, you're actually uh, making a lot more money over getting that person to subscribe to your service versus getting them to the theater. 
So economically, it actually makes sense for them to put more stuff on streaming. How it affects writers and Hollywood is a, a whole nother aspect to it, though. But I think you're missing my point, which is... okay. I get that like it makes more sense to have people subscribe over the long term. I understand that. But if you like, okay, if you put, we'll just take the lady and the tram thing out and you put it out in November and you just kind of hold on to it for a year before you ever release it on DVD, hoping people subscribe Mm -hmm. because they really want to watch it. Do you see what I'm saying? They cannot go back to the old distribution model of waiting a year or two because everybody else has already bought into the distribution model of releasing it on home video within two months. Sure. So that's what I'm getting at. Right. Well, then people know, like you're saying, then people will just wait is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. I I think some people will still want to go see things in the theater. Um, I think you have two two camps here. So you've got your blockbusters, your big Disney, you know, Pixar, uh, Marvel, Warner Brothers, the big, you know, uh, DC, all those things. People want to see those. Like fans really want to see those in the theater right when they're available. They 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 will probably also watch it on stream when it comes out. But then your, your other bucket of movies isn't. I wouldn't call them second tier necessarily, but the lower budget, more indie films, more art films, the Oscar kind of films, mm-hmm. uh, those are all definitely coming out in the theater, especially since things like Netflix have already been banned from the Oscars. So those are definitely coming out in the theater, at least for a while. How long is a good question. And I, you know, whether it's economical or will people just wait for streaming, I don't know. But there, there are audiences that will always go see those at the theaters and then buy it and see it on streaming and do all that kind of stuff because, you know, they're fans. And then you have other people that really love film, let's call it cinema, <laughs> who, who will go to see things in the theaters, even the small indie theaters, because that's where the, uh, you know, the writer, producer, director wanted it to be seen. It was written for that, you know, venue. And I, I don't know, as a writer, um, I just want my stuff produced. I don't usually think about where it's going to be. I am a little more concerned about how I'm going to get paid for it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. because um, that has yet to be seen what's going to happen with, uh, you know, things like back end and royalties are all different when you go to a streaming model, you know, it's pennies versus, you know, dollars. Um, when you start dividing up that $7 a month across all your different, you know, content, it can get pretty thin. In fact, Disney uh, put out a trailer before they launched, that was over three hours long that had everything that was going to be on the surface when it launched. So just imagine all of those uh, movies, you have to um, compensate all the writers and directors and whoever else is, is in that, you know, in their contracts to get residuals from those. And how do you calculate all that based on, you know, plays or subscribe subscribers uh, minutes viewed. And uh, well, I think we, we talked about this. Um, the writer's guild is going to, is gearing up for their, negotiations with the studios this spring because uh in may the writer's contract runs out again mm-hmm. with the studios we could have another strike if they don't come up with a new plan but i have a feeling this very subject will be a big part of it uh for writers and eventually actors as well we'll want to know how uh you know if their movie is uh put onto a streaming service how they're going to be compensated uh if there's no ticket sales to be had because of it yeah i guess i kind of wonder I mean, do they get a percentage of the subscription costs? Like I know with, for example, 
TV shows, they had like the Nielsen ratings and they could kind of see like how many people were watching what show at a particular time. But do they have that kind of data on streaming or do they just kind of oh, assume they have tons that- of data? Um, you know, it's hard to tell how many people are watching exactly because you don't know if there's multiple people watching that kind of stuff because, you know, you could have a room full of people sharing a streaming service or mm-hmm. roommates and that kind of stuff. You have a good idea. You know how many views it's had or how many times it's been watched and watched all the way through. And uh, so they have they have lots of data on it. It's just a matter of how do you, you know, monetize it? How do you calculate it? It's not like YouTube where you, you know, have ads where, you know, you mm. get paid per ad kind of yeah. thing or paid by clicks. So I'm not sure, but it's definitely going to be on everyone's mind as these negotiations come up. And the cost could get passed to the subscribers, which would piss them off, but people got to eat. Creators got to eat, right? So yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. And now mm-hmm. for something a little more lighthearted. Today, we have a special guest, Aaron Colite. Welcome. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Oh my gosh, we're so excited to have you. So Aaron <laughs> has done a lot. We'll let you give your short IMDb bio, but I know currently you have a show on Netflix. So catch us up on how you got started right into writing and then we'll go into the present day. Um, it's a, you know, the, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very long story as a young boy living in Encino. I only wanted to put pen to paper. No, you know, I, I've, I, I always liked writing. I was a comic book nerd, you know, basically from the age of 12, I've been going to the comic book store every week ever since and knew that I wanted to wanted to write and wanted to write, you know, genre, genre stories. Um, I went, I, I grew up in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley. And the, the, my fondest memory if growing up was my, my grandma lived in Burbank and on the way home, we would pass by Warner brothers and I saw those big, huge posters. I don't know if anybody has seen the Warner brothers studios, but they have these gigantic posters that are still there um, that had always had their movies that were coming out. And I remember driving past being like, that's what I want to do one day. I want to know what goes inside that place because those are my favorite movies. And I want a movie poster up on, on that wall. Um, And so I've kind of been trying to do that ever since. Um, You know, I started as a, as a, as a writer's assistant um, and a showrunner's assistant on a, on an, a long time ago, what feels like a long time ago, on a show called Party of Five, uh, which is getting its its uh, its reboot yep. right reboot. now. <laughs> so the original this, Party of Five, yeah. I was on. I was an assistant on the original Party of Five, and worked as a writer's assistant for about a decade um, until uh, I got a chance to be a staff writer on a show called Crossing Jordan, uh, that was run by a guy named Tim Kring. Uh, mm-hmm. That a lot of people are aware of, and I happened to be the nerd on the writing staff when he was doing this little show called Heroes, and he was like, "Hey, you go to the comic book store. You're a nerd. I want to talk to you about this idea." And I was like, "I want to talk to you about this idea. This is fantastic. <laughs> this is the best thing I've ever heard." Um, and people have to remember, like when Tim was talking about doing Heroes, this was before. Uh, the the Marvel Cinematic Universe even existed. At that point, Marvel was even in bankruptcy as a company. The combo company was bankrupt. Um, 
And, and so this was, this was such a unique, such a, an original idea. So I just wanted to do anything that I could to be a part of it. And kind of right when I got started um, as a staff writer, Tim was, was making heroes and I got to uh, be in, in there for the ground floor. And, and that really helped propel my writing career. Um, uh, because from there I was able to do heroes, um, have done, a, you know, some, some movie adaptations, uh, got to work on Star Trek Discovery and has led me here to doing my, my, my Netflix show called Daybreak. Wow. This, you know, I, I don't want to fanboy out a little bit here, but I'm, I'm, I loved heroes, love Star Trek. I've been watching Star Trek since my, I was a kid with my mom. So from the original series, so mm-hmm. you're, you know, I'm a little bit in awe right now. But uh, I'll try to put my writer's hat back on. Um, <laughs> as a, as a, um, you know, someone who's worked in network and in, uh, and in now on Netflix, how do, how do you, uh, how different is that experience? Uh, what is it like to produce and write for uh, broadcast versus uh, like a streamer? You know, I, it is different and it's not different in a lot of ways. You know, I think that. My, I think the thing that's changed the most is 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 the culture around creating television right now, and I don't think that has anything to do with necessarily streaming or broadcast. I think it has to do with there. There are so many shows and so many ways to watch shows right now, and the thing that I would take away from my Netflix experience, and we had just the, the best the best executives to work with possible in Cole Galvin and Stacy Silverman. Um, and they really got on board very early with the show that we were pitching them and that we wanted to make. And that was the most important thing. Um, I don't know if you've seen Daybreak yet. I don't know if your, your viewers have seen it. It's an insane show. It yeah, is. I've, I've seen the pilot so far. It's, it's pretty hilarious. If you like zombie land, it's got a really fun vibe to it. It's a, uh, uh, no, you've done a really unique, fun thing there. Actually, it's really weird, and and I I you know, I hope you keep watching it because it gets even stranger. <laughs> it gets really. It gets it. Yeah, we take a lot. You know, we take a lot of risks, and and certainly, you know, it is built for a a binge experience. But it is like it it gets even crazier, um, and. And, I can't wait. And my and and my experience has been, you know, in network television and broadcast television. Certainly, historically, if you wanted to take risks or you wanted to do something a little bit out there, it's met with reticence, and it's met with it's it's met with apprehension, um, because it's you know people are people are fearful of the unknown and people are fearful of taking some some big swings and because it might not work. Um, and that has been the opposite case here at Netflix. It has been, you know, 100%, um, you know, partially because <laughs> uh, I might be a little bit of a wounded dog or, or poorly trained from years of, of doing this. But, like, we would put things in scripts and be expecting, oh, we're going to totally get a note on this. They're never going to let us do this. This is just too crazy. And we never got that from Netflix. In fact, if anything, they were just like, no, keep going. Like, this is fantastic. We love what you're doing, and having that level of support, knowing that uh, we weren't getting, you know, pushback from from 
from the network, but rather encouragement to keep on going and had a real transparent and ongoing, wonderful conversation with them about how we're making the show and what the show is meant to accomplish. Uh, that was um, an amazing creative process for me. We definitely want to talk about Daybreak because there's so many interesting things going on with the show. Uh, but I want to go back real quick because one of the things you mentioned when you were talking about like heroes and just being into genre writing was that that was not popular at the mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because you've made a career out of the curve didn't even exist because the curve wasn't even on the horizon. So how do you, uh, you know, because people I think try to write for like, oh, I'm going to write something marketable, but you didn't really go that route, did you? And yet it still worked. You know, I think I, I think it's there's a lot of luck and timing, <laughs> you know, uh, involved in that because because Crossing Jordan, which was a which was a which is a wonderful show, and has you know if you look at Tim Cregan, like Crossing the guy who created Crossing Jordan created Heroes, you would never imagine that that could come from the same brain, and yet it did. Um, you know, Crossing Jordan was a was a proce- was a was a procedural you know kind of cop show at the end of the day. It was solving a mystery every single week. It couldn't be more mundane. Um, I think, and and, but I think like we, you know, I got to come up right as at a time when the tide was changing. Um, right when I started on 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 Crossing Jordan, Alias had launched, and soon after Alias, um, Lost had launched, and I think that you know what JJ and Damon and those guys had done was started to change the viewers to make them all a little bit more nerdy and a little bit more geeky and to be able to accept genre television in a way that no one was accepting it before, not in a mainstream kind of fashion because it was presented in a really, just in a really, you know, palatable package. It wasn't, you know, where, where I used to be have to get genre television was, syndicated was whether I was watching Star Trek Next Generation um, or or some things on cable, but basically it didn't exist. And 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 I got it from certainly the comic books that 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 I that I loved consistently. Um, but I think those guys, you know, kind of did this amazing magic trick with with a very broad audience was to get them to understand like genre storytelling is really cool. And it doesn't have to be, you know, people in capes in order to just be, to be a superhero story or to be a sci-fi story or to be a, uh, a fantasy story. And, and because I kind of came up right at that time, I was able to really transfer that into, into, you know, a nice career for myself. And I'm thankful for it every, every single day. What was your inspiration for um, Daybreak? Um, so my inspiration for Daybreak was 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 t- um, multifold. One is so my co-creator on the show and the director of the first two episodes, Brad Payton, uh, who who is an incredible director. He had actually found the original graphic novel that the show is based on, um, and he had written a a feature version of of the graphic novel. Um, I was meeting with him. We shared our mutual agent at the time and the agent sent me daybreak as a sample of Brad's writing to read, to understand what, what this is something he was into. We were actually supposed to meet on, we were actually supposed to talk about a different comic book altogether. And I got to the meeting and (laughs) 
I was like, look, I know we're supposed to talk about this comic book, but really I just want to talk about your Daybreak script and what's going on with it. And can we just like spend the whole entire meeting talking about that? And it was an uncouth thing to do, but I really, I just saw something in his script and, and the script had actually gone out to town at the time and, and didn't get any traction because it was kind of right after warm bodies came out. So there was this kind of, you know, really niche area of, of horror comedy and zomcoms that were kind of not exactly working. It, you know, they're very niche with Zombie Land or Warm Bodies or Shaun of the Dead. I mean, these are things that I adore and love, but weren't generating very cute, big audiences. And his script, Brad's script, was kind of closer in tone to that. It wasn't exactly, you know, balls out humorous, but it had this thing, which was this narrator who was breaking the fourth wall in a Ferris Bueller type fashion and who was kind of very optimistic about the apocalypse. And I just love that. I think we had seen so many, you know, <laughs> apocalypses and dystopias that were, that are just, they, they, they smell bad. Like you can see the stink lines coming through your television set when you're watching them. And I loved this concept that one person looked at the apocalypse as if it was the best thing that ever happened to him. Yeah, well, he's Canadian. So. Uh, and he's Canadian, you know, he is Canadian, but it's also like, but what it tapped into for me was that's how I felt when I was in high school and junior high. I had these fantasies of like, man, it would be great if the world ended because then you could just totally reinvent yourself. You could be whoever you wanted. You didn't have to be laid down with, with all the, the trappings of, of what other people perceived you to be. You had an opportunity to change. Um, and there was a movie that uh, played all the time on HBO when I was, when I was in junior high called, uh, called Night of the Comet. That was, I don't know if you guys remember that movie. <laughs> if you, if you, uh, it's, it starred Robert Beltran, who was on Star Trek Voyager. Yes. Um, and in that movie, it was basically right after Haley's Comet. And they're like, oh, how do we use Haley's Comet as a way to tell a horror movie? And all the parents basically evaporate. Kids are left. And they have a great time. And that always stuck with me because I always felt like, well, that's what people would do if the world ended and only kids were left. They would, they would, go, they would go balls out and have a great time. Um, and so we started building the show based kind of on that mutually shared experience of, of can we create something that is a, a wish fulfillment version of the apocalypse where we could have horror, but we could also have humor and kind of blend it with heart as well. Cool. And an article came across our desk from Variety saying that there is a podcast tie-in called The Only Podcast <laughs> Left. So I believe Daybreak debuted right before Halloween, right? So this podcast mm -hmm. is coming out uh, November and then it'll be everywhere in December. So that's interesting. You're doing a, a, yeah. a tie-in thing. Talk a little bit about that. So it's it's really cool. The first episode came out on Spotify. It's going to be exclusively on Spotify until December, and then it goes everywhere. It's you do need to you have to watch the show, and then this is a great supplemental material, and I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, doing supplemental material and doing uh, additional content was was nothing you know relatively new to me. You know, one of the things I did on Heroes was we created these first series of web comics to go along with every episode. Um, so doing. I read all of those. Those are fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and those were so much fun because we got to tell like, oh, there's these 
these alternate stories to do. And we got to work with these great artists and even collected in, in a graphic novel form. Um, and so Netflix came when, this summer when we were doing posts on the show, Netflix came to me and they were like, look, we want to get into podcasting, specifically getting into narrative podcasting. And we want, you know, Daybreak to be the first show to do that. Um, I have to admit, I was ridiculously apprehensive <laughs> about doing it at first. Um, partially because I'm, I'm a big podcast listener. I do not listen to a lot of narrative podcasts because, you know, um, I'm basically spending my time listening to stuff like Pod Save America and Serial and Keep It and stuff that has a much more organic, um, you know, uh, reason for for talking and and communicating to the audience in the fashion that that they're doing it some similar to what we're doing right now um and doing narrative is this nice throwback to old you know to old radio shows but i didn't want to do something that felt inorganic and and i wanted to to have a real like good reason to exist um and you know, if when you watch Daybreak, when you see it, you know, I think the two things that are, are pillars of our storytelling are really doing very big visuals, very cinematic style storytelling and being really irreverent. And this felt like you are taking away one of my major tools of, of visual storytelling. And, and I and you're tying a hand behind my back. So I have to figure out how to do this with just with just audio. And then <laughs> then I had this really strange thought of, of, I think I know how to do this. And, and it was a way of, I mean, one of the things that I continuously listen to is, is fan podcasts of shows. And it kind of started after listening to talking dead and watching talking dead. Um, there was a couple game of Thrones podcasts that I listened to um, because I love how those fan podcasts really create fan communities so you could talk about theories and you could talk about what the writers are thinking you could talk about all all manner of 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 where the show's going and shipping like i just loved you know participating in that um and i found a way to do that with daybreak in a really organic fashion uh so, so it's a little surreal and and basically you know just the basic pitch of it is 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 that um Daybreak is about, you know, the world ends, only the kids survive, the adults are gone, and they form into their various tribes. And one of the tribes, the tribe that we follow in the podcast is the AV Club, who, of course, after the bombs fell, their manner of survival is they hooked up all the cameras all around Glendale, California, in order to survive so that they could see what was coming around the corner? Are there ghoulies coming? Is there mutant pugs? Are there a gang of marauding kids? And what they wound up doing by hooking up all these cameras is watching what was going on around Glendale. And so they use that to become addicted voyeurs to the same show that we've been watching on Netflix. And oh. so they've been watching the same show that we've been watching and they decided to make a fan podcast of that exact show. So oh, that's fun. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so did you write the podcast concurrently with the live action show or are you running two writers rooms or so we, how does that all work? <laughs> we did it we did it after. So we were able to kind of comment on the show that I already knew existed and how it existed. Um I was kind in a fashion running two writers rooms in a way. Um 
but not really. What I what we did was um, the season two writers room has just been starting up, and we don't have our official pickup for season two, but we have a writers room going. And as we had that writers room going, they asked us to do this podcast. So we're thinking about season two, and season one is basically finished and shot and edited. And I used all of our writers, including the support staff, to be able to find a way to do this podcast and to write it simultaneously as we're doing all this work at the same time. Um, one of the things that was really important to me um, was that our, our writer's assistants, our writer's PA, um, our script coordinator, like everybody got an opportunity to actually write on the podcast as the rest of the writers were working on season two of the show um, as a way of kind of giving back to our, our assistant staff. Um, you know, there's a lot going on right now with, with Hollywood assistants and abuse of Hollywood assistants. And I was a Hollywood assistant. And one of the things that's really important to me is always like giving back to the assistants, giving them opportunities to write, giving them opportunities to learn. Um, they're not here, you know, people don't come <laughs> to Los Angeles to be an assistant, to get me coffee and to get the writer's room, you know, lattes and lunch. They're here to be writers. Um, and this was a wonderful opportunity to get them actual experience writing um, so that we could all do our jobs and, and, and create some wonderful content. Um, it was just they had an opportunity to write uh, and, to show, and to share their voices. That's super cool. I, you know, I um, don't know that I could start as an assistant. I'm, I just turned 50, actually. <laughs> You know, what advice would you have to, you know, we have a lot of, uh, you know, writers who are starting out listening to our podcast. What advice would you give them as far as, you know, um, work trying to get into, you know, writing for television? Um, certainly, you know, even being 50, I think being an assistant is still a good job. Um, and I think, look, when I was being, when I was a writer assistant, it was, it's harder to get a writer's assistant job. It feels like it's harder to get a writer's assistant job than it is to get a writing job because there's only one writer's assistant in a room and there's usually anywhere between five to 10 writers in a room. So it's, it's, it's a hard job to get. I think the thing that the advice that I, I often give is like you, there's, there's two things I would, I would fundamentally put it down to two things. There is, you know, if you find a single contact in the industry, take them out to lunch, ask them questions, get coffee with them, learn their story, learn how they made it in. And, and when you have that contact, ask that person for two or three more contacts. It's all about, you know, getting to know people in this industry and that's how you're going to find the jobs. And that's how you're going to find the opportunities because it's still a, it's still a, who do you know? And, and how do you know them? And there's so many opportunities for that to happen. You just need to kind of get your foot in the door with one, one person, one good meeting um, can generate so many other meetings. Um, the other thing I would also add to that is, is people have to keep writing. It's so important to consistently generate material. Um, I, I just looked at it the other day in my garage. I have an, a very unfortunate stack of scripts in my, in my garage from the time when I was an assistant, when I wrote, 
you know, spec after spec after spec. I had a Buffy spec script and a Law and Order SVU spec script and uh, a Shield spec script and even a Jackie Chan adventure spec script. I would just continuously write to try to get an agent, to try to get representation, to try to get um, anybody to kind of pay attention to me. But it was also about just learning how to write television, learning how to write any show I could by studying it and, and investing the time in making it and making these scripts, even though like all these scripts, they're probably pretty terrible. Um, but they gave me a basis of education of like, oh, this is how television is constructed. This is how to write a scene. This is how to write an into a scene and an out of a scene. This is how to write a good cliffhanger. Um, and that amount of practice and that amount of, of, of work, I do believe, you know, helps transform you into a better writer. That is amazing advice. And thank you so much you. for taking the time to chat with us. This has been amazing just learning all about it. <laughs> oh, man. It was so it's a pleasure talking to you. It was, this was a great way to spend my afternoon. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. If uh, people want to get a hold of you or if they want to follow you, where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram. They can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm, I'm on both. Uh, I think on Instagram, I'm Aaron Eli Colite and on Twitter, I'm Aaron Colite. You can find me in both places. Perfect. All right. right, Thank you. Can't wait for the podcast. Absolutely. Enjoy the show. Thank you. Both of them. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Make sure you follow us online and we'll see you in December.